Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. When you hear the term eating disorder, who do you think of first? Someone who eats too much or someone who eats too little? Maybe you think it's an issue that affects only women. It may surprise you, an estimated 30 million Americans have struggled with an eating disorder at some point in their lives. That's according to the National Eating Disorders Association, or NIDA. It's also an issue that cuts across all ethnic backgrounds. Coming up, we'll hear from a Latina about when she developed an eating disorder and how she got help. We'll also hear from a Connecticut doctor about treatment programs in our state. Have you had an eating disorder or you know someone who has? We want to hear from you. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. As always, find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. First, we're going to learn more about eating disorders and the misconceptions that surround them. So joining us uh, by phone now is Claire Misko, CEO of the National Eating Disorders Association. That's based in New York. Claire, welcome to our show. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, so I keep mentioning eating disorders, but how, how are they defined? What are we talking about exactly? Well, eating disorders are, first of all, a very serious public health issue. As you mentioned, 30 million Americans will struggle with an eating disorder at some point in their lives. And that includes 20 million women and 10 million men. Um, and so this is not just a women's issue. It's an issue that affects people of all ages, of all sizes, races, backgrounds. Um, and when we talk about eating disorders, we're really talking about a broad range of behaviors. Um, there are eating disorders that are restrictive, where people will severely restrict the, um, the amount of food that they eat. Um, that's considered to be um, the diagnosis of anorexia. Um, there's also bulimia, which is um, characterized by binging, eating large quantities of food. And, um, and, and it's not just the, the quantity of food, but it's the feeling of shame and embarrassment um, and the lack of control and then um, feeling the need to purge. And that can be done through vomiting, laxative abuse, we also hear from people who use exercise as a way of, you know, as a compensatory behavior. Um, and then there's binge eating disorder, which actually affects more people than anorexia and bulimia combined. And that's, again, characterized by that loss of control around eating. Um, often there's uh, secrecy around eating. And these are very complex illnesses. Um, we call them biopsychosocial. So um, there's a lot of compelling evidence to show that some people are predisposed to developing eating disorders. Um, there's a neurobiological and genetic connection. Um, they're also closely linked to other psychological disorders. So many people with eating disorders are also struggling with anxiety, depression. Um, there's a strong link to trauma and substance use disorder. So, you know, the psychological piece is there. These are not choices. They're not fads. And then, of course, we live in a culture that glorifies, you know, perfection and um, thinness and now fitness. And there are so many confusing messages about health and wellness. 
So, you know, these are illnesses that are treatable, um, but they are very widespread. And there are so many people who are not diagnosed and not accessing help. That's important. That's an important point because we said an estimated 30 million Americans, but that number is likely higher because, as you said, uh, many people are undiagnosed. That's right. And that's one of the things we hear so often um, at NIDA. We, we operate a helpline and we get calls and contacts um, through our website and through our chat um, from people who have waited a very long time to reach out for help because they don't see themselves reflected in the mainstream stories that are told about eating disorders. So we hear things like, well, I'm not that underweight, or, you know, I don't fit the stereotypical picture. I'm not sure that, um, that I have an eating disorder. And yet they go on to describe behavior that is very much disordered eating. Um, so these stereotypes are real barriers for people to reach out for help. Uh, you mentioned culture earlier, and when we think about stereotypes, is it, li- is it more common in our society to think about when we hear the term eating disorder, that this is something that affects uh, white women, white upper-class women, uh, versus, as you mentioned, uh, people from across uh, many different um, ethnic backgrounds? Yeah, unfortunately, that stereotype does still persist. Um, I've worked in the eating disorders field for over 20 years, and this has been a consistent challenge. Um, When most people hear the term eating disorder, unfortunately, they do um, think of a young, white, affluent, thin woman. And that just does not reflect the reality of who struggles. Um, Eating disorders are a diverse issue. Um, We actually see similar rates of eating disorders among Um, non-Hispanic whites, Hispanics, African-Americans, and Asians in the U.S., Um, but people of color are significantly less likely to receive help for their eating disorder because of these stereotypes. And, um, you know, the language around eating disorders, the research around eating disorders, um, you know, has has traditionally been done on um, white women. So we have a lot of work to do as far as um, confronting these stereotypes and making um, treatments and recovery accessible to everyone who deserves it. This is where we live on the phone. Claire Misko, CEO of the National Eating Disorders Association, uh, known as NIDA. This is a national nonprofit that works to help Americans affected by eating disorders, also their families. Uh, We're focusing our show today uh, on this topic. And if this is something that has touched you or someone you know, we want to hear from you. The number 860-275-7266. So, Claire, you said that you've been in this field for more than 20 years. Uh, Now there is more attention on the fact that this eating eating disorders impact uh, many different people from different backgrounds. We're going to be talking about that in just a little bit uh, with a a Latina uh, who experienced an eating disorder and how she uh, sought out uh, treatment. Uh, But before we do that, I wanted to know more about uh, the focus of NIDA in trying to bring awareness to this very diverse uh, issue and how uh, many different populations, how they can go about seeking help, where the gaps uh, exist, so to speak. Yeah, well, this is a big priority for us at NIDA, um, you know, recognizing these gaps and really encouraging people to, to seek help. Um, you know, 
we have uh, on our website a screening tool. Um, it's a free anonymous screener that anyone can take to get an indication of whether their behavior um, is um, potentially leading to or whether they are already actively struggling with an eating disorder. So um, we encourage everyone, um, if you have a concern, um, to go to our website at nationaleatingdisorders.org and take that screener. Um, as I mentioned, we also have a helpline. We have trained volunteers um, who can speak to anyone, um, whether it's yourself, you're concerned about yourself, or someone you care about. Um, we have connections to treatment and um, also just general support and education. Um, it's really important. These are very overwhelming, isolating illnesses. And so reaching out for help and finding a connection um, to treatment and talking to someone who understands is, is really critical. And, you know, for us as an organization, really busting through those stereotypes and those myths um, is so important. And, you know, we're starting to make progress. I think elevating the stories of those who don't fit that typical stereotypical picture is really important. Um, and making sure that, you know, as an organization, we're advancing research, we are advancing education and really talking about the diverse range of experiences of people with eating disorders. We're going to take some calls in just another minute or so, uh, but I wanted to ask you, Claire, when you say elevating uh, the voices and the people that have uh, not been um, paid attention to in the past, who are we talking about? Are we talking about men? Are we talking about people in the LGBTQ community? Yes, all, all of the above and, and more. Um, you know, again, these are illnesses that affect everyone. And um, we actually see um, higher rates of eating disorders in the LGBTQ population. Um, NIDA has worked closely with a number of organizations, including the Trevor Project, um, which is a crisis line for LGBTQ youth. Um, we really made a point this year with our National Eating Disorders Awareness Week campaign um, to seek out stories and um, have people, um, men, women, people of all sizes. That's another big myth about eating disorders, that, you know, everyone with an eating disorder is thin. Um, that is absolutely not true. So we want to talk about um, how these illnesses present in, in, in all people and um, people of different ethnic backgrounds and races as well. Um, you know, we, uh, we often hear, as I said, from people who do not see themselves in the stories that are told about eating disorders. And we really need to change that. And that's a, a, a big focus for our organization. Um, we know that people, when they hear um, from others who have a similar experience, um, it can be really, really powerful. And um, it can help you to feel less alone. Um, these are illnesses that are shrouded in shame and secrecy. So we want people of all backgrounds um, to come forward and, and share their stories and understand that their experience matters and that their struggle is valid. Let's take some calls here on Where We Live. You can join us, 860-275-7266. If you've experienced an eating disorder, maybe someone in your family, your child, your spouse, you can join us again, 860-275-7266, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Katie's calling from stores. Katie, uh, go ahead with your question or comment. Um, I just wanted to comment and say that, you know, I really appreciate this segment, and I'm someone who struggled um, in a not typical body with an eating disorder for, you know, over 10 years. And a lot of people didn't recognize it because I don't live in a, a small body and people just were sort of 
uh, congratulating me on the weight loss that was happening or the, you know, restriction that was happening, like calling it willpower and calling the overexercise behaviors as, you know, strong. And a lot of that stuff was celebrated for most of my life. So, you know, I never really was diagnosed until I was almost 30. And it's just very eye-opening to see, you know, the different experiences and the different types of bodies and the different types of stories that people have that struggle with eating disorder. Well, thank you, Katie, uh, for your call. Uh, Claire, you mentioned earlier that there are many factors in play uh, when someone develops an eating disorder. It's not as simple as saying, well, uh, maybe put a little more on your plate, put a little less on your plate. Yeah, again, these are very, very complex illnesses. And, um, you know, while there often is a, a, you know, an obsession around food, the real root of the eating disorder is much deeper than that. Um, so you can't, you, while you do need to learn how to have a healthier relationship with food, there are also, um, you know, other underlying issues. And, you know, as I said, there's a strong connection to depression and anxiety, um, other psychological issues. And that's why treatment really needs to be comprehensive. So you can't just fix um, what's on the plate or, um, you know, address the surface behavior. That's part of it. But you really need um, that comprehensive treatment that includes the psychological piece, the counseling um, you know, oftentimes people with eating disorders can really benefit from nutritional counseling. And of course, there's the, you know, the medical component as well. These are very dangerous illnesses um, that, that can be life-threatening. So, you know, you need to address the, you know, the medical issues as well. So um, it's important if you're struggling or you're concerned about someone who might be um, to reach out for help. Early intervention makes a huge difference um, in the treatment outcomes. So, you know, even if you're um, starting to be concerned, you know, reaching out early is very important. Uh, before we let you go, Claire, uh, we talked again about how eating disorders affect people from many different backgrounds. But in terms of the medical professionals, the clinicians that uh, uh, people can turn to for help, how diverse is that field and what efforts are being done uh, to diversify it so that there's more uh, maybe comfort when a certain patient or person comes before a medical professional and understands maybe even uh, cultural um, issues that are in play there? Yeah, that's a very important point. And when I talk about um, the work that we need to do as, a, as an eating disorders field, that's another area where we need to see more progress. Um, you know, we're starting to get there. We're starting to talk more about the diversity of um, populations who struggle. But we certainly need to do more outreach and education so that we can bring clinicians into the field um, who, ha who do come from different backgrounds and have different experiences. Um, so when we talk about elevating stories, that's one piece of it. But we also really need to do that work. Um, and that's another big priority for NIDA. Um, as I said, we're starting to see some, some progress there, but we have a ways to go. I'm curious, just uh, real quick, when we think about uh, major health, public health issues that impact us in this country, often we think about obesity, um, and there are federal dollars that are in play for research. But I'm just curious in terms of what kind of dollars are out there, Claire, to look specifically at individuals um, suffering from uh, bulimia and other eating disorders? Well, eating disorders are um, very underfunded. Um, when you look at um, other mental health disorders, um, eating disorders receive less than a dollar per person affected. Um, so this is something that, that NIDA is working on um, in terms of advancing federal funding for research. Um, we also fund research, and, you know, we're really making an effort to fund 
um, researchers who are looking at different communities um, so that we can get a better understanding of these illnesses. Um, we really need more research so that we can advance treatments. Um, we can better understand how to disseminate treatments into different communities um, where we know there's a need. Um, and, you know, we need also to really focus on, you know, prevention efforts and early intervention efforts. So, you know, when we talk about the, the amount of research dollars that are going to eating disorders right now, we need a lot more. Um, and we need to really focus on expanding um, the research that we, that we do have so that we can better understand how these illnesses are affecting different populations. Claire Misko, again, is CEO of the National Eating Disorders Association. Claire, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we're going to be joined by a Connecticut doctor to talk about treatment here in our state. And a young woman will also share her story about growing up in a Latino family and how culture and ethnicity can impact when someone receives help for an eating disorder. We also want to hear from you. Have you received treatment for an eating disorder or has a loved one? You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We just heard from a national nonprofit that focuses on how to help Americans with eating disorders and their families. Is this something you've experienced at some point in your life? Your spouse? Maybe your child? You can join us, 860-275-7266, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, We talked about how this condition affects a wide range of people, no matter their gender or race. But in our society, it's common to think of it as an issue that may impact only white heterosexual women. But eating disorders cut across all ethnicities, including Latino and black communities. A recent NPR story reported binge eating disorders are high among these populations. Uh, Joining us now uh, with more, uh, first I want to welcome into the studio uh, Dr. Sarah Niego, psychiatrist and service chief of the Eating Disorders Program at Silver Hill Hospital in New Canaan, Connecticut. Dr. Niego, welcome to our show. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. And we're happy that you're here. Uh, for our listeners who have questions, Dr. Niego is here to answer those for you. Oh, I first wanted to turn to a, a personal story. Uh, Anna E. Ortega is joining us uh, from a studio in Portland, Oregon. She's Latina and also has recovered from an eating disorder. Anna E., welcome to the show. Thank you for having me here. So tell us uh, when you first developed uh, an eating disorder and what was going on in your life at the time. Yeah. So Claire actually touched on a couple of things that either supported or affected my own treatment of an eating disorder. But before I get into that, I grew up in a very traditional Mexican household. Both of my parents immigrated to the U.S. when I was one. And to this day, they speak very little English. Um, I grew up dancing and my eating disorder started surfacing when I was about, I was a preteen slash early teenager. Um, I became hyper aware of the numbers, hyper aware of my body image. And I think my dad had a a very difficult time navigating the challenges of raising a teenage daughter. And I began dieting in secrecy. And of course, like any eating disorder, my my focus became an obsession, both with food and numbers. And also, I was terrified of food and numbers. So it, it really exploded. And something that really caught my attention when Claire was talking was that I wasn't actually diagnosed until when I was 15 years of age. Um, so it had been two, two plus years of dieting and this eating disorder developing. 
you said you were dieting. So were you thinking that you were too heavy at the time? I was. I, I Again, with the dancing background, numbers and body image was a big center of attention. And I I thought <laughs> that I was bigger than I was. I, I, I was afraid of how I looked. And what about um, how your parents responded to you? You mentioned that uh, they immigrated here from Mexico. What did they say to you uh, when they saw your weight fluctuating? Well, I think at the time, eating disorders, this was almost 20 years ago, the eating disorders weren't really understood or weren't really talked about. And especially in the Latino culture, they we didn't talk about our feelings. We didn't talk about mental health. And so I think that when they started noticing something was off, they teased me about it instead of acknowledging it and talking to me about their concerns. So it only exacerbated the the issue. When you say uh, tease, what do you mean? Did they call you uh, fat? Yes, yes, they did. So my dad would say, estás gorda, or uh, why are you focusing so much on on the dancing or the the working out? And and in Spanish, gorda, gordita, it's a term of endearment. But I think that the teasing and it didn't have malicious intent. But once I heard it over and over, um, it, it really started to become internalized. I mentioned that we have a psychiatrist in studio, Dr. Sarah Niego. Um, I was curious if you could just respond a little to uh, what um, NAE has been saying, because I was thinking back when I went through puberty, like many of us, our weight does kind of fluctuate. And I'm just curious, is that a a common time for especially girls uh, to start to think about, what am I, maybe I'm too heavy and what should I do about it? Absolutely. And not just especially girls. We know now we see a lot of, of it in men. Um, but Anna, your story is really, really a cl- classic story for um, people who develop eating disorders. It does tend to start in, around puberty for a lot of reasons. Your body is changing, your brain is changing, um, and and you're confronted with um, all kinds of issues about who you are and and who and and how to get people to connect with you. So that's a really common story. What what you're talking about is that. What didn't happen was that it was identified in your um, in your family. That's actually not that uncommon either. Um, and then we know there's that added layer of cultural factors that um, came into play for you. I applaud you for coming forward. And uh, I, I really applaud the champions of the National Eating Disorder Association for raising awareness and lowering stigma so people like you can come out eventually and, and acknowledge that they have an con- a issue that needs um some attention. I brought up uh, puberty and uh, especially among girls because we know in our culture there is this ideal of what is attractive, mm-hmm. uh, how slim you must be. And so, NAE, uh, as being in the Latino uh, community, uh, what was the what did what did the what did beauty look like at the time? And then, how did you kind of reconcile that with what was going on with your body? <laughs> well, that was a very confusing time for me. <laughs> I I remember having this pressure to look a certain way to to fit into certain um, dresses for for the dancing part of it but also what I was seeing in the media and my my, my the Spanish TV that I that I had at home it was curved so it was conflicting messages mm-hmm. it was very hard to uphold <laughs> so you said at 15 you were diagnosed uh, walk us through that moment and was it difficult um, again uh, to for your parents to understand what was going on because of the language barrier absolutely I 
So I had a health scare um, around 15, and that was really what took me into the doctor's office. And at that point, I was officially diagnosed. It had gone on for two years or so where I had developed these behaviors. And the language was such an issue. I, I was left to interpret for my family. And I would not advise letting an eating disorder a patient to interpret to their parents and um, give them the decisions or give them the options of treatment because I really chose to I kind of mislead what my options were or how I was being um, really the extent of my disease. And so language was an issue. Information on eating disorders, especially in Spanish, was also an issue. And my parents, they really, I think, were concerned, but they didn't know how to express it and they didn't know how to be involved. And I don't think that the professionals knew either on how to incorporate them. Um, And so there was a lot of shame and it it was just, just eat uh, for my parents, just eat, get better. And it, it was a difficult time. Uh, this is where we live. Uh, today we're talking about eating disorders. Uh, with us from a studio in Portland, Oregon is Anna E. Ortega. Uh, she's Latina and also has recovered from an eating disorder. Uh, with us in studio is Dr. Sarah Niego, a psychiatrist and service chief of the Eating Disorders Program at Silver Hill Hospital in New Canaan, Connecticut. You can join us too, the number 860-275-7266. You can also uh, tweet us at where we live, find us on Facebook, just search the name of our show. Uh, Anna E., you mentioned that um, you were referred to treatment. So what exactly were those treatment options? And when did you feel finally that you were on a path to recovery? Yeah, so when I was a teenager, I was referred to inpatient and group therapy and the whole comprehensive treatment. I only chose to do certain parts of it. And um, I, I wish that I would have done it a little bit different, but I didn't know how at the time. And so when I started group therapy, I really felt isolated. I could connect with my peers um, because of the eating disorder and the struggles that I was facing, but I could not relate in terms of family involvement and family support and how uh, just our backgrounds. And so that made it extremely difficult for my treatment to and recovery to be successful. And I graduated from high school, went on to college, and continued to struggle with an eating disorder. And when I was in my early 20s, I decided to go back to treatment. And I I had continued therapy in some form or another, but I gave it another shot. And I this time incorporated who I wanted to be there, who could be able to support me, who, who was able to know about understanding disorders, educate themselves, know more about them, speak English, and be involved during uh, the group sessions, the family sessions. And so that included my godmother and friends, and that made a huge difference. Also, Nita, I, I discovered them through Jenny Schaefer, and Nita has just so much support, such a great community. Um, and now I'm really, really fortunate to have been able to work with Nita to provide resources and develop resources in Spanish, and I think that's going to help future generations. You mentioned Nita a couple times. This was uh, the guest that we had for the first part of the show, uh, Claire Misco, who's CEO of the National Eating Disorders Association, or Nita, and we'll uh, tweet out links uh, to that organization uh, at where we live. Uh, when you were diagnosed in your teenage years, was it your father's insurance uh, plan that covered your treatment, and was that a barrier at all? 
I was so lucky that I did have health insurance uh, for the treatment of it. I, I mean, receiving treatment for an eating disorder with insurance is hard enough. So I can't even imagine families who don't have health insurance. Uh, Dr. Niego is with us again uh, from Silver Hill Hospital. Uh, so now, and this is like what she was saying about 15, 20 years ago when she was first diagnosed, is it common for insurance companies to cover treatment for this wide range of eating disorders? Well, it it's more common. I You know, I find myself fighting the eating disorder, um, the insurance companies to cover treatment. But with the ne- 1996 uh, passing of the Mental Health Parity Act, there is more of an argument that um, eating disorders really deserve the same health care dollars as any other medical condition. Um, and so there's some, there is something there, but there's still a lot of stigma on the, mm-hmm. well, it's not really stigma on the insurance company front. It's about the bottom line, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, and I, I, I think you've gone through quite a journey. I, I think, um, I'm glad that you have now become more of a voice for people not fully recovered yet. Um, but yeah, it, um, insurance does cover, it does, they do cover, it's just still kind of a fight. So you're talking about maybe a length of treatment that they would pay for? If, you're ta- if your treatment is covered by insurance, it's length of treatment, it's, um, you know, the insurance company sending people letters that say, you're not, we're not authorizing because you're not underweight. They say things like that, that kind of, um, kind of just hit right where it hurts for people in recovery. Um, so th- there's kind of a, a really a need for education on all fronts. Also, I wanted to mention the, the doctor visits that um, a lot of people, there's a lot of shame. We know that in terms of um, shedding any light on the fact that you're struggling with eating disorder. And then a lot of people avoid going to, to the doctor because of, they don't want to get on the scale. They don't want to hear you need to lose weight or they don't want to have to explain. So they just hide it. They don't say anything. And that also gets in the way of people being identified as in need of help. This is where we live. Join us, 860-275-7266. Phil's calling from Hartford. Phil, go ahead. Oh, hi. Good morning. Thank you so much for taking my call. Um, I was hoping to address what the guest just spoke about. Um, there is, uh, I, I hate to say this, but my beautiful, wonderful scholar, athlete daughter passed away at 17 from an eating disorder not that long ago. I'm so and, sorry. Uh, we're still sort of wondering, you know, everything. But uh, there is an initiative now in the Connecticut legislature to um, enforce parity laws. Um, I like to say that parity is the parity um, because the laws are largely unenforced. And with our daughter, we fought every situation that your guest has referred to. Length of stay, physical indicators of a mental illness, everything constantly being rejected from a Connecticut-based health insurer who uh, would make clerical errors, would make uh, coverage uh, poor determinations, uh, endless appeals. I'm very glad to say that we had the resources to pay the checks and fight, but many people don't, and they depend upon parity laws. I do have to say that Congressman Larson has been incredibly supportive and Nita has worked with Congressman Larson on this issue, but it's time. I mean, the court decision that came down in California yesterday, where a federal judge just let United Healthcare have it from the bench about their um, their 
lapses with regard to parity, their seemingly crazy coverage determinations, and he just let go. And I can't really blame the guy. It is very hard. We treat physical illness. It's covered by health insurance. We have parity laws at the federal level. We have parity laws at the Connecticut level. And I make a plea to the incoming insurance commissioner, Andrew Mays, who's just been appointed, who is an experienced regulator and an outstanding person, to take on this cause. And thank you. We, thank you, Phil, for sharing a little bit of your story. Again, I'm sorry to hear about the loss of your daughter, but it's good to know that there is this bill before the Connecticut General Assembly. Dr. Yeah, Niega? Yeah. You know, um, we, we engage with families all the time in fighting insurance companies. It does take that. You know, I, I call families and I say, you need to get in. We need to call any lawyer you know, any your own insurance company needs to know you're fighting this. It, it takes a village and, and it does take um, a family eating disorders, our family issues too. So we all have to kind of work together to, to push for the coverage and the care that people really need. You've also, um, Phil, you've highlighted a really important piece of this, which is eating disorders are, are extremely dangerous, high mortality conditions. They are, you know, treatable. There is hope. And it also, we we are losing people. We're losing young people. Years of life are lost to eating disorders. And it is so important for insurance companies and, and physicians and everybody to kind of realize that. Uh, Tony is calling from Larchmont, New York. Tony, go ahead. Oh, hello. Um, well, I, it seems like it's gendered towards women, the conversation. In my lifetime, I've experienced <laughs> two periods of extreme weight loss. And they were related more to grief and loss of social status. And it wasn't, um, they weren't, both of these episodes weren't diagnosed as anorexia. However, people were trying at some point to feed me and people were shocked to see how much weight I've lost. I guess my question is, um, how, you know, with women, it seems like body image is the factor. With men, are there other factors that relate to anorexia, if it is anorexia? And also, um, what is the relationship with people with anorexia? I also read, because, you know, I thought I had it, that, um, that with men who have anorexia, they tend to identify with women, whereas women who have anorexia are, um, they're trying to take the place of their mother. They're, they're trying to take over the suffering of a mother. So that's a lot, but I was just curious if you had any comments. Well, Tony, Tony, a great question, and yes, and we again want to emphasize that we eating disorders uh, do impact uh, people from all genders, all ethnic backgrounds. But absolutely, go ahead, Dr. Nathan. Absolutely. Uh, you know, also, they're, they're multifactorial conditions. Part of it is biological, genetic, but there's also the psychosocial piece. And, um, and, and we see all around an attempt to kind of simplify the cause of eating disorders. It's all about anxiety or it's all about environment. It's not about any one thing. And so for each person kind of to look at what the underlying precipitating, perpetuating factors are is, is key. And, um, and, and so for you, I think what what you are saying is for you it was it was certain stressors and your experience is your unique experience you do you know have an eating disorder whatever we call it specifically uh, it sounds like you you do i wanted to take another call matt from middletown matt go ahead hi how's it going i've had a coworker who had clear eating disorder problems but whenever we would try and talk about it you know she didn't want to hear it she would shut us down and it was really hard to, to help this person. So I'm curious if you have advice on how to reach those people who really don't want to hear 
um, your concerns. That is one of the hardest things that is really hard. And one thing that is great about the National Eating Disorder Association, actually, is that they, they have a whole toolkit, a whole um, the whole packet of how to talk to somebody, how, what words are helpful, what words are usually not helpful. So you can g- get guidance from the National Eating Disorder Association. You know, we talk about it in our program at Silver Hill. We have people, we have families in, we're coaching them on how to confront or express concern. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of help out there. I wanted to get the perspective of Anna E. Ortega also with us from a studio in Portland, Oregon, um, who um, is recovered from an eating disorder. Uh, Matt's question again, Anna E. asking, you know, if you know someone um, who's dealing with this, uh, how do you talk about it and be sensitive without saying the wrong thing? Yeah, that is such a great question. And it took me back to when I was suffering and the the concern that I that I received from my family and, and my godmother specifically and how much I shut it down because I was not in a space to to hear it to acknowledge that I was suffering I think just sharing that you are concerned and referring to the Nita toolkit that was just mentioned I, I think that's a great resource and uh, for me it wasn't necessarily hearing the the specific concerns it was just more so i see that you are struggling or i i see i i i see that you you need some help Again, this is Where We Live uh, from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Uh, today, we're focusing in on eating disorders. We want to hear from you, especially if you have a question or you're wondering about uh, what are some treatment options in our state. We have Dr. Sarah Niego with us, a psychiatrist and service chief of the Eating Disorders Program at Silver Hill Hospital in New Canaan, and Anna E. Ortega, Latina, who has recovered from an eating disorder, joining us from Oregon today. We'll take your questions and calls after the break. The number 860 275 this is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're learning more about eating disorders today, and you can join us, 860-275-7266, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Gina's calling from Branford. Gina, go ahead. Hello. Yes, I am an eating disorder specialist. I am credentialed. I've worked for about 24, five years here in Connecticut, and I do know Sarah Diego, Dr. Diego. Hi, Gina. Um, Hi. (laughs) I did want to stress everything that has been said is so important, and even Katie, who called in, her words were just so helpful in letting people understand how each individual works. My experience with eating disorders focuses on body image as well as eating disorders in terms of all of the components, the biological, psychosocial, genetic. The body image piece has been researched, and even in Connecticut we have great researchers who have written books. Thomas Cash and Przesnitsky have written a book on body image, Dr. Margot Main, and there's new research in the embodiment of how body image healing needs to occur. So my point is, and what their point is, is that if this is not addressed, we will have reoccurrence and relapses. The body needs to heal, and for an eating disorder to heal, the body image needs to heal. Thank you, Gina, for your call. Dr. Niego, so talk a little bit about uh, the I, this uh, uh, issue of relapse because of, of, of body image fluctuating and how we think about yeah. ourselves. Well, relapse rates are unfortunately 
not uncommon, you know, pretty high in eating disorders. And there is that lingering piece that Gina is talking about. Body image is the kind of the last, the eating disorder mind around body shape and weight is one of the last things to go. And I, and I think you're right, Gina, that if it's not, if that work isn't done, if it's not addressed and there's not a, some acceptance and peace made with the body, you're, you're definitely at risk of, of relapse. It'll probably always be your Achilles heel and then in times of stress likely to crop back up. Anna E. Ortega is still with us from uh, Portland, Oregon. Uh, earlier, Anna E., you talked about um, you know the fact that there, when you were um, going through uh, your eating disorder and trying to find treatment, um, you know the the problem of not there not being a lot of diversity, whether it's the people around you at the group therapy or the people who are responding and and caring for you. And so, can you talk a little bit more about some of the barriers that still exist today, so that when we talk about eating disorders, uh, we're able to reach. Uh, people from many different backgrounds and, and not just thinking about these misconceptions that we have of, of who suffers from it and who doesn't? Yeah, well, I think it's important to keep in mind that eating disorders don't discriminate. They, they affect anyone and everyone. And one thing that I am really grateful for is that there is more awareness around that, but we still need to continue the conversation. And I think that one of my my dreams now as I reflect on my time or, or during my time of illness is going to, and I'm not sure what it looks like now, but if I could go back and if I would have met someone who looked like me or understood a little bit more about my background, that would have been extremely helpful. It, it would have brought a little bit of calmness around the issue. So I, I think just acknowledging that it is different and having that awareness that it is different for everyone. Uh, Dr. Niego, uh, we mentioned that you're from Silver Hill Hospital, uh, but for listeners throughout our state, what are the treatment options available here? Thank goodness there's, there are more. When I first started um, as a a physician or psychiatrist treating eating disorders in Connecticut, there was very little out there. And um, in the last, I'd say, eight years or so, there's been a burgeoning of treatment options. I think, you know, again, as people are coming forward, as it's, it's being identified as a need, more insurance companies at least acknowledging the need to cover, um, There's there are partial hospital programs. There's intensive outpatient. There's an inpatient eating disorder program in Connecticut. The, the one in Connecticut, thank goodness, we, we used to send people off to Massachusetts. We have a residential program at Silver Hill. So people come, they live with us, and they eat with us. And, you know, we're one of, of many, and thank, I'm really thankful for that. And how do you address the diversity question, uh, whether yeah. it's the clinicians at Silver Hill Hospital or are there programs that are really looking mm-hmm. into eating disorders within the Latino and black uh, populations, even the Native American populations we have in the state? Absolutely. I mean, we have people from all over the world at our, our program at Silver Hill. So we've got you know people from Turkey, Canada, everywhere. So that there, they, there's just a kind of natural diversity in that regard. In terms of staffing, we do have a um, gen, we have a um, LGBTQ person in, on our staff. So, uh, and a lot of our people do ha- are in the trans kind of under that umbrella. And um, so she runs groups, her LGBTQ groups for our program and for the rest of the hospital as well. So I think in that on that front, um, we have a staff member who meets them where they are. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's it's always better to have staff that 
can that are more diverse. Uh, Annie Ortega, you had mentioned that um, you've been able to reach out to uh, NIDA, the National Eating Disorders Association. You're working with them on um, literature, ways to reach out to the Latino population. So how, how, tell us a little bit more about that effort. It's been such a great experience to be able to work with NIDA um, to cover these, to translate and give my input on these materials. I think that they, they are helping. I I wish my family would have had uh, this resource available to them when I was growing up. Um, I hope that they are helping a lot more families now, which which I think they are. Uh, and and Anna E, this is Dr. Ne- well, you know, it's Dr. Niego. Um, yeah. You know, that's that is what we are doing too. That's that we hear that a lot from people. I wish my family knew about this. I wish they went for help earlier. And people were struggling with alcohol dependence and an eating disorder. I wish my parents had known this and stepped in. So it's it's an ongoing, you know, um, process of trying to increase awareness and and have families made more aware of. Uh, What about when we think about the state of Connecticut? We know there's many different Mm -hmm. uh, disparities, but uh, for a residents who are living uh, in poverty or within a certain income level, um, you know, how, who's reaching out to them uh, to even see if they, um, to be able to diagnose them or see what the symptoms are? Uh, I was looking at a statistic from NIDA that uh, people of color with self-acknowledged eating and weight concerns were significantly less likely than white uh, patients to have been asked by a doctor yes, about eating disorder true. symptoms. So what do we do about that? 17% as compared to 40% for non-white Hispanics, but black people in general don't get um, identified as in need of help. Um, yeah, we're just going to have to keep raising awareness and, and working with with the front lines in terms of the medical community and and um and with this information, hopefully things will happen. It's, it's an ongoing challenge. So the need for more bilingual professionals, researchers also. Absolutely. And and I'm also a member. I, I'm a member of NIDA, and I'm a member of the International Academy for Eating Disorders. So we're, I mean, I have this dream of opening a center in Spain. There, There's a lot of work to be done out there. Uh, we got a question from uh, a listener earlier who was unable to stay on the line, but uh, he wanted to know um, if he thinks he has an eating disorder, how does he uh, have that conversation with his doctor? What does he ask his doctor? So that's a huge challenge, how to have the conversation with the doctor. Um, with the uh, primary care doctor? It just said doctor. So yeah, um, I mean, yeah. I think it's very courageous of you to even can be thinking of how to broach the topic. I would, I, if you have a good relationship, I would be as forthright and honest as you can and say, I think I'm struggling with X, Y, Z, and here's why. And that, that's the beginning of a conversation. Then you might get some help with other providers. Uh, Anna Ortega is also with us from Portland, Oregon. Um, you know, we heard about this importance of raising awareness that eating disorders affect people from many diverse backgrounds. Um, and I'm curious, with with efforts through NIDA, there's also the Binge Eating Disorder mm-hmm. Association. I believe they're now working together, BETA, mm-hmm. uh, BETA uh, to help uh, especially people of color. Um, are you feeling more optimistic uh, now in your late 20s, early 30s than you than you were in, in your teens? 
I am. It's just it's so such an honor to be able to talk about this. And I think the more we talk about it, the more awareness, the more conversations that we can have around the difficulties and also how to overcome those difficulties. So I am very excited. And Dr. Niego, uh, for our listeners who want to know more about the program that uh, you uh, work with, uh, where can they go? Sure. I will give you a number. So the Silver Hill Hospital Eating Disorder Program can be reached by calling um, 866-542-4455. And and the person who answers can help walk you through how to get some help from us. Again, I want to thank uh, our doctor uh, here with us in studio, Dr. Sarah Niego, the psychiatrist and service chief of the Eating Disorders Program at Silver Hill Hospital in New Canaan, Connecticut. Uh, thank you, Dr. Niego. Thank you so much for having me, helping me be a part of this. And Anna E. Ortega, a Latina who has recovered from an eating disorder, she joined us today from the studio uh, Digital One in Portland, Oregon. And it's not easy to talk about uh, personal stories. Uh, again, you, you do this because you want to reach more people to help them find help that you maybe didn't get early enough? Yeah, I, I just want to say that recovery is so worth it. And to not give up, it, it does get better. It can get better. Annie, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Uh, Today's show produced by senior producer Lydia Brown. Uh, Thanks to WMPR intern Seth Blair on the phones. Katie Jalarski was on our technical uh, board uh, making sure that you could hear us today. Uh, I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Again, check out our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. For more information about today's show, for uh, links uh, to some of the treatment programs and other uh, information uh, to help you. Thanks again for listening.